0: The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 72. This is Employment Law Now, and I am your host, Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. We are into the summer. It is now June 2020. I hope you are all staying safe, healthy, and relatively sane. I know, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, it seems, for so many people looking to get back to work, so many businesses looking to reopen. Uh, At the same time, so many people are still suffering so much from the coronavirus and this whole pandemic, both from a health standpoint as well as financially in many cases. But uh, whatever your set of circumstances, I really hope uh, you and your families and your colleagues uh, are staying as well as you possibly can. And thank you, of course, as always, for listening to the podcast. We've spent a lot of time in the past three months talking about planning, uh, talking about what kinds of issues companies should be thinking about as they begin to think about reopening, finally, uh, reopening their doors, bringing their workforces back in uh, from the work at home uh, and get businesses running again. Uh, not only is planning and um, ahead of time planning such a great idea just in and of itself, um, but it's also a good idea to avoid potential claims, potential lawsuits down the road. As I say all the time on this podcast, no matter what you do as an employer, you will never be able to completely eliminate all labor and employment lawsuits and other types of lawsuits for that matter, but proper planning, good planning, um, good uh, consideration given to uh, all of the issues that we talk about on this podcast regularly, that kind of planning, even if it won't eliminate all claims, it will minimize perhaps the number of claims that are brought. Good planning, good communication with your employees before the return to work uh, and as you are beginning to return folks back to work is so critical here. And what I wanted to do in today's episode is talk about where I see the next wave of labor and employment lawsuits coming. Uh, So I have my top 10 labor and employment claims and lawsuits that I think will be arising out of this coronavirus pandemic. We can certainly spend a single episode on any one of these in my top 10 list. Um, So the purpose of today is really not to do a specific deep dive and give all of the answers to these claims, all of the potential defenses. There will be future episodes of this podcast where I will go a little more specifically into some of these particular claims, but I wanted to just start the discussion and, and start the thinking uh, with this episode and and put on your radar, again, what I think are going to be the 10 buckets of labor and employment claims that I think will be coming out of this pandemic. So let's get started. Let's talk about uh, the first one. Uh, and the first one may be the most obvious coming out of the pandemic uh, will be labor and employment claims and lawsuits prompted by the emergency legislation that was created As a result of the pandemic, the FFCRA, the Federal Paid Sick Leave Law, and the Emergency FMLA Amendments, again, both part of the FFCRA, and I think you will see claims being made in the coming months and probably the next couple of years just under that piece of legislation alone. Primarily, um, employees who are claiming that the company failed to provide them leave that they were entitled to. We are coming into the summer months now as I said we're in June 2020 at the moment and while you should keep in mind that unless it's extended the FFCRA obligations continue to apply through the end of this year through December 31st 2020 but there are two particular rules that I want to highlight for you uh, as we move into the summer and that is rule number five or event number five under the paid sick leave law which is also mirrored by the emergency fmla amendment and that has to do with leave given to an employee if that employee is unable to work including unable to telework because the employee is caring for his or her child whose school or place of care is closed or whose child care provider is unavailable due to COVID 19 related reasons That's something that I think will come up, uh, particularly now in the summer months, obviously, Uh, as schools were closed because of COVID-19, employees, to the extent they met the other eligibility terms of art under this new law, uh, were entitled to a specific amount of leave. But as we get to the summer and as schools were going to be closed anyway, uh, the leave triggering event might not apply to certain employees. Why? Again, because the school has to have been closed due to COVID-19 reasons. If the school is closed simply because it's the end of the year, that doesn't trigger the uh, leave entitlement under either the paid sick leave event number five or the uh, accompanying emergency FMLA provision. But what about camps? What about other summer arrangements? Well, if an employee had uh, arranged or was intending to have uh, his or her children go to summer camp, whether day camp, whether sleepaway camp, or there were other childcare arrangements being made for the summer, and those plans are now out the window because of COVID 19. Well, your leave entitlement may still be existing. And it may be something that you have an obligation as an employer to provide. Again, the key is that the school, the camp, the daycare center, the child care, it has to be unavailable or closed due to COVID-19. And the leave that the employee is entitled to is only for that period of time in which he or she is unable to work or telework because of having to take care of the child. So in terms of types of claims under this bucket, Employees will presumably be making claims, filing lawsuits, alleging that uh, the company did not provide them the leave they were entitled to. What else? Employers who force the use of company PTO, the use of company PTO, either in lieu of or before being entitled to this FFCRA special leave, those employers may find themselves on the wrong side of claims as well. Because there are only certain situations where you can require PTO to be used either in lieu of or before the uh, FFCRA leave is taken. So there will be claims addressing company PTO and what employers force employees to do. From an anti-retaliation standpoint, certainly, there will likely be claims where employees allege that they were disciplined or terminated because they made a leave request uh, or because they were complaining about some FFCRA issue. Bucket number two And here's where flexibility comes in and balancing the psychology of all of this with the need to run your business. The second bucket has to do with ADA, FMLA, and other accommodation claims. We expect there to be claims made, not just under the FFCRA, but under other federal, state, and local accommodation statutes. And there's a whole host of issues here. Just because businesses are entitled to open their doors to the physical workplace. Just because employers are requiring employees to come back, albeit in phases, doesn't mean that we're all gonna blink and pretend as if none of this ever happened. There will be a psychology lag, I believe, to all of this, where whether it's because of legitimate concerns based on underlying conditions, or if it's just a matter of generalized fears that an employee has that so many of us have about leaving the home about returning to work about using mass transit depending on where they're located there is going to be an uptick in requests for accommodations and no doubt an uptick in litigation over a claim that an employer failed to engage in an interactive process an interactive dialogue and ultimately failed to provide a reasonable accommodation. There are so many issues that employers are going to have to grapple with. The mental versus physical. Very often, physical disabilities are obvious. Mental disabilities, not so much. But with a pandemic like what we've been going through for the past three months, there will be employees who have certain types of stress-related conditions, certain types of anxiety, certain types of mental-related disabilities that Uh, will have to be accommodated, potentially. Again, distinguishing between generalized fears on the one hand that many of us have versus underlying conditions that employees do have or may be exasperated um, because of what's been going on with this pandemic. Employers cannot just make broad-brush decisions, cannot make Uh, large-scale decisions that will apply to all employees. It's really important that employers look to the individual circumstances that are raised and make individualized assessments before determining some employment action. What about the use of PPE? Well, we've been talking about that, tweeting about it, doing webinars about the use of PPE when folks return to the workplace. What if there is a disability or a religious objection That an employee brings to the company's um, management that they don't want to or don't feel as if they can comply with PPE rules. What kind of accommodations will have to be made in those situations? And then last but certainly not least, this notion of teleworking, telecommuting. Employees have been forced to telework in many cases because of the quarantine and the stay-at-home orders, but what happens when they are able to go back to work? They're being asked to return to work. For the most part, before this pandemic, companies took the position, again for the most part, that telework was not appropriate for many positions, that the essential functions of many positions required in-person interaction with coworkers or with supervisors. Many employees, I suspect, uh, are going to claim that they made it fine the past three months getting their work done, telecommuting. If they have a legitimate need for an accommodation, telecommuting should be that kind of reasonable accommodation that's given to them going forward as well, since they were able to do it for the last three months. Well, it's going to be an interesting issue, and we'll have to see how courts address this. Um, But you know, one thing to look at is what kind of productivity there really was with the particular individual who was telecommuting for the past three months, just because an employee was working from home remotely, maybe even being somewhat productive does not mean that if the employee had been allowed to work, the productivity would not have been much greater. That the employee wouldn't have been able to do his or her job, the essential functions of the job, much better with in-person, more regular in-person attendance. But it is going to be an issue that's uh, worth keeping in mind and will be worth watching as the months of the next couple of years go by. Again, this bucket, ADA, FMLA, and other accommodation claims, um, is going to be, I think, a significant source of labor and employment lawsuits moving forward. Bucket number three, there will be a rise in traditional and perhaps not so traditional discrimination claims brought by various protected classes. First, there are going to be employers who are not necessarily looking to bring back their entire workforce all at once. So how do you decide who you're going to bring back and who you're not going to bring back? In many cases, it may make sense to do a reduction in force type of analysis, You know, when you're thinking about laying off parts of your workforce, you do a rating and a ranking or some other analysis to figure out what the business need, what the business case is for laying off certain portions of the workforce so as not to make it uh, seem as if you are either intentionally discriminating against a particular protected class or you're not unintentionally creating a disparate impact. Well, the same issue potentially arises if you're looking to bring back only a portion of your workforce. Who are you bringing back and why? Are you disparately impacting a particular protected class like women? As a company, is the mindset to think that women may be the primary caregiver so we're not going to call women back to work? You may be opening yourself up to a discrimination claim. So you want to look at who you're bringing back and why and how you can justify it so that you can perhaps um, avoid a potential discrimination claim arising from your rehire process. In the same vein, we've been talking about vulnerable populations, right? People who are of a certain age are considered part of the vulnerable population, people who have a particular condition or particular disability. And there are companies out there who think that they are doing the good thing, the right thing by going to an employee and saying, you know what, we're not going to let you come back in this first phase and the second phase because you are of a certain age or because we know that you had some medical condition. That falls in the category of no good deed goes unpunished because, again, you don't want to make presumptions, you don't want to make assumptions about what employees can do or should do because of their inclusion in a particular group, whether it's age-related, disability-related, or otherwise. You think you're doing the right thing, and many times you are trying to do the right thing, but you need to be careful. In most cases, you need to have an employee who is in the vulnerable population or has a particular concern go to company management himself or herself and raise the issue before you then do an individualized assessment to see, do we need to have an interactive process? Do we potentially need to have a reasonable accommodation? Again, takeaway here, avoid all assumptions, all presumptions. Avoid making broad decisions based on a particular group. We will certainly see a rise in discrimination claims uh, on behalf of national origin. Uh, there have been so many, unfortunately, who have been targeted uh, through harassment, through discrimination. Asian Americans, for example, have been, unfortunately, targeted because of people's perceptions of things having to do with coronavirus, where coronavirus uh, began. So you need to make sure that your harassment, discrimination, retaliation policies uh, have been reviewed and are not just sitting in a desk drawer, but that they are being enforced uh, and that people are coming back to work, but coming back to work in a safe and a healthy environment that is free of discrimination and harassment. Be sensitive to the potential for national origin and other types of protected group discrimination. We've also heard a lot about this term associational discrimination, that you're being discriminated against because you associate With somebody else. Now, you're not necessarily, as a company, required to accommodate an employee because that employee associates with somebody with a disability, as a general matter but there may be a discrimination claim based on somebody's association with someone else in a protected class. Maybe your employee has a family member of a certain age or vulnerable condition. Maybe your employee has family members whose workers uh, are in uh, the healthcare industry and you perceive that those individuals may be infected with a particular uh, disease or illness. You wanna be careful when you are making uh, decisions, employment-related decisions, because you're associating your employee um, with a particular condition based on who that employee may be associating with. So that's bucket number three. Bucket number four of my top 10 likely labor and employment claims and lawsuits to arise post-pandemic, wage and hour claims. We do expect there to continue to be a large surge in individual and class action claims under various federal, state, and local wage and hour laws. I'll give you just a few examples. We've been talking about medical screening and temperature taking. In some jurisdictions, employers are required to compensate employees for the time spent engaging in pre-shift and post-shift activities. So if employees are spending anything other than de minimis time going through medical screenings or temperature taking, certainly at the beginning of a shift, they may be entitled to compensation for that. Also, telework challenges. We know, particularly when it's about non-exempt employees, where you don't have the same kind of monitoring and control over their work hours because they're working remotely, they're working from home, you need to make sure that we are compensating them based on all of their hours' work, and if they're entitled to overtime, that they are compensated for that. It's harder to monitor whether employees are working more than 40 hours in a work week, and there are some states, California, for example, that have daily overtime requirements. What about misclassification? Right, We have salaried-exempt people who are making the same base salary per week, regardless of how much work they do or don't do. That's part of what goes into the exemption. Well, there may very well be employers out there who say, we can't bring too many people back, but we need to get the work done. So let's bring back our salaried exempt employees and have them do all of the work that the non-exempt hourly workers would have done if they were here. Well, the danger in that is, obviously, if your salary-exempt employees start to do too much non-exempt type work, either from a time standpoint or because their job and the importance of their job becomes such that their value is in performing this non-exempt work, you may have a claim on your hands that they really should be reclassified as non-exempt employees because their importance for this period of time has been the non-exempt work that they are primarily doing. There are also other rules regarding notifications and notices, New York is an example of that, but there are other jurisdictions as well. Anytime you are changing somebody's rate, uh, changing their classification, as you may be doing when you're bringing employees back, there are required notices that have to be given So all of these wage and hour claims on top of the significant wage and hour claims uh, that continue to be filed even before the pandemic, uh, I think are things you're going to see in the coming months. Bucket number five, and somewhat related to that, um, I do think you are going to have individual and class action claims for failure to follow WARN and COBRA requirements. Both have very technical requirements, starting with WARN. Uh, It's not just about what layoffs and furloughs and closings you may have chosen to do at the beginning of this pandemic, but what happens as you are starting to bring employees back and you realize, you know, we don't need this whole workforce back. We need to do a round of layoffs or furloughs or closings. You need to keep in mind what Warn Act requirements may be triggered, not just on the federal level with the federal Warn Act, But many states have mini-warn acts. Local governments also, in some cases, have mini-warn acts that you want to make sure you are following in your jurisdiction. One of the big issues that I think will be litigated is the notion of what exceptions to the notice requirement did the employer rely on. We've heard a lot about the unforeseeable business circumstance exception to federal WARN again i can't stress this enough be careful when it comes to the state and local versions because for example there are states like california that does not have an unforeseen business exception in its version of warn but just staying with the federal level you also want to keep in mind that what may have been an unforeseen business circumstance in march maybe in april might not be considered an unforeseen business circumstance this coming October, November, or December. So don't, again, just have a knee-jerk reaction and think, well, because I've heard other people talk about this exception or I've been told that I was able to use this exception for my first round of layoffs uh, or terminations or furloughs back in March and April, that I can apply the same exception continuously. You want to make sure that you are analyzing the particular situation because the longer that you go away from the triggering business circumstance that you're claiming is unforeseeable or was unforeseeable i think it's going to be harder for you to rely solely on the unforeseeable business circumstance and there will be a lot of litigation in this area Cobra, as I said as well, has very technical requirements uh, that need to be followed. The United States Department of Labor just recently amended its model notice that you could find on their website. You could also reach out to me. I'm happy to give you a copy of it. But for all of those terminations, for all of those other people who are suffering a triggering event that requires potentially COBRA coverage, you want to make sure that you are not only getting the COBRA notice out to the people who are entitled to receive it, but that the COBRA notice from a substantive standpoint says what it's supposed to say and does what it's supposed to do, not only to contain the information that the Department of Labor is requiring um, you to put in there, but also that you don't have too much other extraneous stuff that shouldn't be in there. You don't have to follow the Department of Labor's template specifically if you don't want, but if you're going to use your own form, you should make sure that it's been reviewed so that you don't have too little information and that you don't have too much information. We go to number six in our top ten list of anticipated labor and employment claims post-pandemic, and this has to do with health and safety-related tort claims we talk a lot uh, and i would say most of the time about labor and employment issues falling under statutes you know pick your acronym fmla ada you got title 7 you got the adea now with this pandemic you have the ffcra but there are common law claims for negligence that have arisen so far and will likely continue to arise post pandemic What do I mean? You have an employee who has become sick from the workplace. You have an employee who tragically has passed away. And now the estate of that employee is arguing that the employer is liable for the death. We've already seen in the press a host of large companies being sued by employees' estates for wrongful death because they contracted, so it is alleged, COVID-19 in the workplace. Now, when I've had this discussion with people, many will say to me, Mike, but I thought that's the whole purpose of workers' compensation. How can an employee or an employee's estate bring a negligence claim against an employer? And for the most part, those people are right. The point of workers' compensation, in virtually all jurisdictions, is to provide a system for compensation for injured Employees, employees who are injured on the job, and in return, the employer is insulated from claims of negligence in a lawsuit. But there are two problems with that. Number one, if you are a company that did not comply with the workers' compensation scheme in your jurisdiction, either because you're not contributing what you were supposed to be contributing, or you did not obtain a workers' compensation policy as you were supposed to, then all bets are off. You are not protected against negligence claims, and the employee or the employee's estate would be entitled to bring a negligence claim against you. The other sort of exception to this whole workers' compensation scheme is, again, workers' compensation almost universally only applies to negligence claims. If, on the other hand, an employee or the employee's estate claims that the employer acted intentionally or deliberately to create a hazardous, unsafe environment that proximately caused the injury, or in some cases acted recklessly or grossly negligent, depending on the jurisdiction, that employee or the employee's estate may be able to get around the workers' compensation scheme and bring an action against the employer. So, beyond, obviously, just because it's the right thing to do, employers would be wise to make sure that their workplaces are free of hazards, healthy, safe, complying with best practices that exist on the federal, state, and local level to avoid these kinds of claims. And it's not just going to be the private lawsuits filed by employees or their estates. I think you're going to see an uptick in agency investigations, either by way of a random investigation, depending on what industry you're in, or because of some complaint brought to the agency by an employee. OSHA is the one that most people think about. Uh, And while there still is no specific federal OSHA standard specifically addressing COVID-19, there's this general duty clause that has always existed. The general duty clause, as many of you may know, requires employers to furnish to each of its workers a place of employment that's free from recognized hazards that would be causing or would be likely to cause death or serious physical harm. So to the extent that your workplace, once employees start returning, does not meet best practices, to the extent that there are Potentially identifiable hazards and unsafe conditions, you are opening yourself up both to employee claims as well as agency investigations. Number seven on my top 10 list privacy, HIPAA, and lawful activities claims. We do expect that uh, individual and class actions will be arising out of various privacy issues. Give you a couple of examples there, too. Again, we've talked a lot about screening and temperature taking. It's the process that is so important as well. What kind of process are you using if you are engaging in medical screening and temperature taking? How confidential is your process? How confidential is your record keeping? Are you maintaining whatever logs you've created in a separate confidential file as opposed to placing it with your regular employee personnel file? What kind of identification disclosures are you making to coworkers of somebody who may, have been, who may have tested positive for COVID-19 or otherwise who has had some medical condition? Are you violating the privacy of that individual by disclosing certain identifying information to coworkers or others who are not on a need-to-know basis? Another area that we're really going to start to uh, see a lot happening is in the technology space particularly when it comes to workplace health monitoring and screening apps. A number of companies out there have developed employer-focused apps that help track employees who have reported COVID-19 symptoms and that also help facilitate contact tracing within a particular workforce. But it's not without its privacy concerns. And you shouldn't just assume that because there is an app, that the app appropriately does all it is supposed to do to protect the privacy of your employees. There are all kinds of risks when it comes to screening generally and when it comes to the use of health monitoring and health screening apps. Lawful activities as well. How often do we talk about protected concerted activity? We've talked about it a lot when it comes to social media and the NLRB what if your employee or your group of employees is engaging in activities in the context of the pandemic that you as the employer don't think is right? Maybe you've heard that a couple of employees for the past three weekends are going to the beach Saturday and Sunday. You don't feel that social distancing can be done there and you want to terminate the employees for going to the beach, even though it may have been lawful in their jurisdiction. You're afraid that they're either gonna get infected or that they may infect other people in your workplace. You need to be careful. You need to be careful because, number one, many jurisdictions have lawful activities laws on the books, which mean that you can't discipline or terminate individuals for engaging in lawful activities. But there is also, as I said, the protected concerted activity idea that will apply here as well. Maybe you have two or more employees who are calling out sick. They're not really sick, but they're doing it as a protest for what they perceive to be unsafe, maybe unhealthy conditions in the workplace. Takeaway again, as I always say, don't be knee-jerk in your reactions. Don't just assume that you can discipline your employees, regardless of their activity, Because you don't like it, because you don't like what they're saying or what they're doing, how they're doing it, etc. Don't make broad assumptions and don't make uh, or don't take broad steps to discipline or terminate employees. You want to do individualized assessments on a case-by-case basis to make sure that you are considering all of the applicable laws that may apply in a particular situation, that you're setting the right precedent, and that ultimately you're acting in a way that could hopefully avoid claims down the road. Number eight in my top ten list of potential labor and employment claims to come out of the pandemic cybersecurity and trade secrets claims. We also expect individual and class claims to arise in this area, particularly as so many people in the workforce have been telecommuting. They have remote access. Maybe they have hard copy documents and files in their home offices. It's much harder to control the use and the disclosure of that information. It's much harder to control the potential for data breaches when you have so many people working remotely so in conjunction with your it and is personnel you want to identify some of the more common methods of a cyber attack or a data breach whether it's for teleworkers or for others and then you want to adopt policies and protocols to ensure that you are going to avoid potential data breaches or cybersecurity issues. And it's not just cybersecurity, but it's about also being more diligent with protecting your company's confidential information and trade secrets, both yours and your clients. Just like with cybersecurity, there are new problems that have been created by the coronavirus. Employees are using confidential information on personal computers while teleworking. As I said a moment ago, employees are taking home physical copies of confidential information. Employees are sending work emails to cloud-based personal accounts. And all of the security concerns that we've been hearing about for virtual meet platforms like Zoom uh, and Google Meets. So you wanna make sure as a company that you are here too, developing the appropriate protocols, the appropriate policies, and requiring your employees to sign the appropriate written acknowledgements so that you can avoid down the road being sued for some sort of cybersecurity or trade secret issue. Number nine, ERISA and benefits claims. We expect individual and class claims arising out of ERISA and benefits questions to uh, continue. They've already started over the past couple of months, and we think that that is an area where we will be seeing a lot of lawsuits. What do I mean? There will be re-enrollment and benefits election issues for folks who are either being rehired altogether or people who were furloughed but continued uh, as active employees. There will be issues surrounding the restoration of unused spending account monies questions about vesting and break in service when it comes to benefits plans, as well as the payout or the failure to pay out monies that employees are entitled to under bonuses or perhaps severance plans. So this area of ERISA and benefits will be a fertile ground for litigation in the coming months and coming years. Finally, number 10 on our top 10 list, And this is a big one whistleblower claims whether it's because employees will return to the workplace legitimately concerned or whether they are going to be returning to the workplace simply to look for a reason to complain about something it really doesn't matter whatever the good or the bad the indifferent whatever the motives are of of the employee I think there's no question that there will be employees returning who will be acting as whistleblowers, going to company management, maybe going to an outside agency, complaining about the best practices that were not utilized in their workplace. Too many people were allowed to congregate. Not enough social distancing. Not enough hygiene rules are being followed. People aren't following the one-way directional signs for hallways. Whatever it is, Your company needs to be prepared for the eventual whistleblowers. Again, whether it's safety and health issues, whether it has to do with wages and hours, uh, or any of the other issues that we've talked about uh, on this episode so far. You want to make sure, to the extent you don't have somebody already, that you have someone designated to address these types of whistleblower claims. Because while employees can certainly go Outside the company to an agency, if they want to, many times they're going to a supervisor or they're keeping their whistleblower claim internal. But nothing prompts them to nevertheless go outside and report their concern to an agency than a company that does nothing with a concern that was brought to their attention. Even before the pandemic, So many people were talking about 2019 as being the year of the whistleblower. Most laws have anti-retaliation, anti-whistleblowing laws in them. New York has a whistleblower law, it's Labor Law Section 740, just by way of example, where employers are not allowed to take retaliatory action because an employee discloses or threatens to disclose to a supervisor or a public body, some activity or practice that violates a law and creates a substantial and specific danger to public health or safety. There are different variations of that, but as I said, most jurisdictions have general anti whistleblowing laws, and most statutes dealing with discrimination, harassment, or some health and safety requirement will also have whistleblower protections. You want to make sure that you are thinking about this. You want to make sure that you have the right people addressing this. Which leads me to my final point here, and that is training. Training, training, training. It's about the mindset here. I started off this episode by giving you the truism that you're never going to be able to eliminate all labor and employment lawsuits. But you can minimize the numbers that are being filed against your company. How? How? by better communication with your employees, by keeping abreast of the kinds of issues that we talk about on this podcast and making sure that you are following best practices in these areas, and also by engaging in appropriate training. We talk about annual sexual harassment training, for example, but it's not just about harassment training. All of these issues, leave accommodation and the do's and don'ts that apply to that, those are the kinds of things that your frontline managers and supervisors are going to be dealing with on a day-to-day basis. It's great that your HR personnel, your in-house legal team, maybe even your C-suite, your senior executives, understand all of these issues. But it's the supervisors and the managers who are on the front lines dealing with employees on a day-to-day basis. They're the ones who need to understand this and not just see these things in a written policy. They're the ones who need to be appropriately trained on these issues so that you can appropriately minimize the number of lawsuits being filed. So that is what I'm talking about today. We will spend future episodes doing more of a deep dive into many of these Uh, issues on my top 10 list, but these are the 10 areas where I think you will see labor and employment claims and lawsuits in the coming months and really probably into the coming years arising out of this coronavirus pandemic. Happy to talk about uh, all of this further with any of you. If you have questions, please feel free to reach out. My firm, Cozen O'Connor, continues to have a coronavirus task force at cozen.com. And if you go and you'll click on the banner that says Coronavirus Task Force, uh, you're going to get all kinds of great guidance, materials, links to government resources and the like. One of the things that I did want to highlight, so many of you know this already, but if you don't, our Labor and Employment Department just created a terrific HR toolkit, which contains about 29 different policies Model forms, templates to use for a variety of circumstances, whether it has to do with medical screening, whether it has to do with leave requests being made by employees, a whole host of issues. We are providing this HR toolkit. Again, these are templates they should be customized you should have counsel review them to customize them to your unique organization certainly to make sure they comply with state and local rules in your jurisdiction but we thought they would be helpful for the hr world and for employers to at least get a head start in developing their own return to work protocols if you have not seen a copy of our toolkit and you would love a copy of it please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, As always, my email is mschmidt at cozen.com, M-S-C-H-M-I-D-T at cozen.com, and I'm happy to send you a copy of our toolkit. Even if you have already started creating your own protocols and policies, not a bad idea just to compare to what we've been doing and what we've been recommending to our own clients. As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the great feedback that I get from so many of you. Thanks for taking the time. And until the next time, stay well, stay healthy, and I hope all of your labor is productive.